So in about two months or so, we will begin a series in the book of Revelation. In my 25th year here, I'm running out of New Testament books. I've been doing a fair amount of study, so let me give you a sneak preview. Actually, I guess I should call it a spoiler alert. Are, are you ready? Jesus is coming back. Amen. So, so again, I ask you, are you ready? I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but it is how the book ends. I, I don't just mean the book of Revelation, I mean this book. If you're one of those people who read the last page or chapter of a novel before reading it, here you go. Jesus wins, which means we win as well. Years ago, the movie Braveheart aired on TV. We didn't go watch it at the theater because of the rating. We waited um, with such wide acclaim when it came out on TV, we decided we wanted to watch it once they cleaned it up a little bit. We weren't available when it aired over two nights. It was such a long movie. It took two nights. No problem. I just recorded it. But it took two videotapes. It's a VCR video cassette record. <laughs> Never mind. The night finally came, and we had enough time to watch the movie. So popcorn in hand, we got ready for that three-hour event. I plugged in the tape. About halfway through, I thought, wow, they sure expect you to know a lot. We got to the end of that tape, and William Wallace, the hero, died. I jerked the tape out and realized I had put in the wrong one, the second tape, <laughs> the end of the story when the hero dies. We threw away the popcorn. We never went back to watch the first tape, literally. I never watched it. I mean, who wants to watch such a movie when the hero dies? Well, in our book, story of all stories, the hero dies, all according to God's plan, but he was raised again the third day. And before ascending to heaven, Jesus promised to come back. He told them, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When he ascended outside of Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, the disciples stood looking up in the sky, lights on, nobody home, look, dumbfounded. Two angels appeared and said, um, what are you doing? He, he told you he is, that he was going and he told you that he was coming back. In the meantime, you're supposed to be taking the gospel to the ends of, of the earth. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. Get to it. Luke chapter 21, I love this one. He said it like this, but when these things begin to take place, this is at the end of the Olivet Discourse. When he's talking about future things to come, you'll hear about it in the book of Revelation. Straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. If that is true, we should both look for and be prepared for his return. It should both encourage and motivate us as followers of Jesus because he is coming back. He wins at the end of the book. The culmination of all history Here's the question, that, a question that I have for you. Do we really believe that? The first service about that time, a girl turned to her mother and said loudly, 
not to me, but to her mother, no. And I thought, how appropriate. Do we really believe that? Do we live eagerly hopeful like we actually believe that Jesus is coming back? She corrected then and yelled yes. How would it change your life if you really did believe it? Would it change your passions, your plans, your priorities? Now, I know that it has become quite popular to mock the Christian faith and even scoff at any idea of his return, just, just like Peter said they would do. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. I love the way he wrote that. Mockers will come with their mocking. Don't miss this. Following their own lusts. Do you see the connection? They will mock because they want to live in their sin. You see, if you want to be the Lord of your own life, you must deny the Lord of the universe. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That is amazing. I never thought of that till I was looking at that text this week. That sounds like a scientific argument to me. <laughs> Something's never changed. Everything goes just like it has since the beginning of creation. Well, Peter then reminded them of a couple of important things that they were overlooking that had escaped their notice. You want to go to science? Fine. First, God created everything that is out of nothing. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. And, it, and in judgment, he wants to destroy the earth with a flood, meaning he can and will do it again. You understand that there are some 250 flood stories in different cultures around the world. Why? Because it happened. Listen, if you are questioning the Christian faith and, and, and starting to doubt, I want to say this, I want to say this gently but clearly. If you're wondering if he will ever come back, peel back the layers of your heart, and you will find in the depth of your heart the desire to live in your sinful flesh. It goes together. Jesus is coming back. And if His coming is closer now than when we first believed, it is even closer now. And it will be closer at the end of the sermon, this day, this week, this month, and this year. And at some point, the last person to be saved will be saved. The trumpet will sound and Jesus will come back. So we should eagerly anticipate and prepare for, those are two different things, anticipate and prepare for his return, which begs a couple of questions. First, how, how do we prepare? We'll come back to that. And second, well, well, what are the reasons that believers look forward to the return of Christ? Because if we were honest, I think a lot of us uh, don't. We like life just as it is. Why, if we are distracted by the good life, as some bumper stickers say, if we're distracted by the good life, should we look forward to the return of Christ? I could think of a few reasons. Perhaps you could think of more. Number one, because then the dead will be raised. Do you, do you believe that? I did a 
funeral a week ago Friday. I have another one this Saturday. Uh, They are not hard if the person, the deceased, was a believer because, well, we have a hope. Those who have believed in Jesus, to whom we have said goodbye for a time, uh, will be raised. There is coming a day when all those in the grave will hear his voice and come out. You say, well, they promised that 2,000 years ago. By the way, Peter went on to say, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. What's it been, a couple of days? The point of the verse is time is not relevant with God. Leads to the second one, death will be defeated. It's good news. It will be no more. No COVID, no cancer, no heart disease. Paul said the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We will no longer pray for sick people. All those prayer lists that you have are gonna be cut by nine-tenths. Because we're, we won't be praying for sick people. We, won't, we will no longer grieve for those um, th- that we've buried. There will be no longer be any sickness or death, not even tears. What are we going to pray for in heaven? He will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. We will enjoy the joy, enter the joy of our master. And then third, all that is, all that is wrong will be made right. All that is wrong will be made right. I'm sure that you have noticed we live in a broken world. Spend a couple of minutes on social media or your favorite news station or, or your favorite website and you will be quickly reminded our world does not work rightly. Even creation groans having been subjected to futility. There's a reason that we have tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and supernovas and colliding galaxy because the world, even the universe does not work rightly and even creation itself is waiting eagerly for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, waiting for Jesus to come back when all will be made right. Interesting to me. Last week was the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So we take one day a year to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. I suppose our brothers and sisters around the world are looking for their redemption. Next, we will no longer struggle with sin in these fallen bodies in this fallen world facing the enemy of our souls. The devil himself and his minions will be cast in the lake of fire. And and, and then we will finally know the ultimate victory of Christ over sin, over our sin. We won't struggle with it anymore. Fifth, not only will we receive new bodies, but we'll receive a new home, the new heavens, the new earth. There will... No longer be any sun there. That's in the book of Revelation. I'm already preaching it. Because God himself will be the light. It's going, my brothers and sisters, it's going to be perfect. No longer any natural disasters or famine or peril or sword or politics. Which means you won't have any need for social media. I mean, what are you going to write? Christ will be king. God will be all in all. Sixth, we will finally do what we were created to to do, worship God through unhindered, glorious relationship, unimpeded by sin. Ever have any, every intention to to, to spend time with the Lord and and worship Him and, and just find yourself distracted? 
Have you ever had those times of special intimacy with the Lord, a time of worship, time in the Word, time in prayer when you saw God do amazing things or you saw God as an amazing God? Have you ever had those dry times when you doubted and you wondered where God was? When Jesus comes back, you will never doubt again. You see, seventh, then we will know even as we are known. Then will we know even as we are known. All those why questions to which there are seemingly no answers, <laughs> we're going to know. I am reminded uh, of C.S. Lewis who once suggested when we get to heaven, enter those pearly gates, we will take one look around and the first words that will escape our mouths are these, of course. Then will we know even as we were no are known. Of course. Eighth, and ultimately, we get Jesus as our greatest treasure. All those things you pine for, all those things that you're distracted by, you get Jesus. If Jesus is your greatest treasure, and he is, you will look for, long for, and prepare for his return. There is indeed much to look forward to as we eagerly await the coming of our Christ. I want to say to you today, brothers and sisters, do not be lulled to sleep. Don't be distracted by all this world seductively offers. Don't love this world. Love its maker. I didn't think it would take three weeks to get back to this most glorious text in Titus chapter 2, but here we are. So let's reread the text. Titus Chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Not, not, not just in the future, right now. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. This is, this is a glorious text. You remember that I suggested that we should think of God's grace, which did appear in past present and future terms. Here was the outline I gave you. God's grace and justification, that's past. God's grace and sanctification, that's happening right now. And God's grace and glorification, that is what we're looking forward to if indeed we are. Past, present, and future terms. When we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved in the past by grace through faith in the gospel. We are being saved in the present by grace through faith as we are transformed into a people for God's own possession. And we will be saved in the future when Christ returns to get us. So we long for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We do, right? Remember also, I shamelessly stole an outline that Josh told me about 
that went like this. Grace is with you in the courtroom when you were declared righteous. Grace is with you in the classroom when you were instructed to be righteous. And, and grace is with you in the waiting room as we await the return of Jesus Christ when we will finally be righteous. Again, we normally think of salvation in, in past terms. We ask questions like, when were you saved? When did you come to faith in Christ? When were you born again? When we meet with people, talk to them about baptism, we want to know when they became a Christian. And all of that is true. Those are appropriate questions. We, we were saved when we were born again, when we were justified, sins removed, and received the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to us. That's what verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. That's past tense, bringing salvation to, to all men, that is to all people who would believe. Jesus appeared, and in his first coming, he was bringing salvation. He was bringing rescue. He did that at his incarnation. That's what we celebrate, you understand, at, at Christmas next month. He became the God-man, and through his perfect sinless life and his substitutionary death on a cross for sinners, we can be saved past, which then brings us to the second point, or the second room, the classroom. We go from having been saved to being saved, from justification to sanctification, the process of being made more holy. And by the way, those two, while they are distinct, justification and sanctification, they are inseparable. You see, if there is, has been no growth in Christ's likeness since the day you prayed a prayer, you were, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you were stillborn. You cannot say you were saved if it does not change your life. There must be an upward trajectory, a growth in holiness. And you cannot shun God's righteousness for your life. We'll get to that. For the grace of God, which is the subject of this very long sentence, verse 11, 14, one sentence, but the subject of the sentence is the grace of God has appeared. That's verse 11. Verse 12, the grace of God then, having brought salvation, is also instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, meaning we live differently. If, again, if there is no difference in the way that you live, if you are still pursuing ungodly and worldly desires, then you have not experienced the grace of God. Because his grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness. And godliness is just that. It is un ungodly, unlike God. Godless thoughts, godless actions. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he uses the exact same word to talk about this is the reason, this ungodliness is the reason the wrath of God is being poured out on humanity. This is serious. Do not think yourself okay because you prayed a prayer. I'm very concerned about those funerals that I have done. I have met with family after family after family of people, usually sometimes that I don't know. And, and, and I'll ask them, tell me about this person. And, and they will say, well, he was a Christian. He, he prayed a prayer when he was eight. He didn't really live like it. He, he never really went to church, but he prayed the prayer. What do I do with that? You must pray a prayer. You must submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. That's what happened when you were saved in the past. But 
God's grace also must be saving you in the present. Jesus, you see, must both be Savior and Lord. His grace is instructing us to say no to any thought, word, or deed that is inconsistent with his character, that is ungodly. By the way, the word instructing is different from the, word, the normal word teaching. It's the word from which we get our word pedagogy. It speaks of, our education majors will understand this. It speaks of strict instruction. See, my parents were really strict. No, they weren't. They were just pedagogues. Strict instruction, strict training and encouragement, and when necessary, admonition, correction, and discipline. This is what the grace of God does, you see. Sometimes it's painful. Those that the Lord loves, he disciplines. He's instructing us. Yes, God's grace saved you, but the work of grace is not finished. It goes on to instruct, train, correct, and discipline us for the purpose of godliness. That is to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Worldly desires are what this world pursues, especially, listen to me, this is a particularly apropos for the world, the culture in which we find ourselves. Worldly desires, especially as it relates to sexual, sensual sins. We are living in a world of unmitigated sexual desire and sin. And the grace of God instructs you to say no. George Barna, a professor and researcher at Arizona Christian University, released a startling survey less than two weeks ago, a week before last. Startling. 39% of those questioned, 39% of 18 to 24-year-olds, that's Gen Z, identify 39% as LGBTQ. And by the way, 40% of young adults do not believe, don't know, or don't care if God exists. Remember, Peter said in the last days they would deny God in the return of Christ because they want to pursue their own lusts. Desires, it's the same word. Here's my point. There is an unprecedented number of people pursuing sexual sin and an equally unprecedented number denying or dismissing the existence of God because it goes together. I am not trying to pick on the LGBT community, simply citing facts that the Bible said that we would see a dismissal of God so that we can live in our sin. Do you, you see how that works? I could say the same thing about anyone engaged in worldly desire, sensuality, and sexual sin. The statistics are egregious. I, let me say it like this. If you are up late on the computer, one thing is for sure, you are not thinking about the return of Christ. Grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ is teaching us to grow in Christ-likeness and to say no to sin. See, before you were saved, you had no power in yourself to say no. 
The truth is you gleefully pursued sin even though sin is self-destructive. But now if you are a follower of Jesus, you actually can say, in fact, you should say no. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said it this way. It's a long text, but it's a really good one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Keep on sinning because we get more grace? Because then grace may increase? May it never be. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? That's what water baptism is a picture of. The baptistry is a coffin in which we died but were raised again, symbolizing that we are new people in Christ, if indeed we are. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, the old man, the old woman was crucified with him in order that our body of sin may be done away with so that you would no longer be slaves to sin. Listen, before you were saved, um, we, we, before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. Sin we must, but no more. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to sin. Not teaching sinless perfection, but you have the power by the Holy Spirit to say no. God's continuing grace instructs us to say no, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, here's the conclusion. Consider yourselves, this is a command, do this. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. There's the word again. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Do you see? Sin is no longer your egregious, hell-bent master. You've died to sin. You have a new master. You are no longer under law and the slave master of sin. You are under grace. Christ saved you and redeemed you from the slave market of sin. And he has given you his spirit by which we now live. Our lives must be different. The point is, grace changes the way we live. Notice verse 12, to deny ungodliness and to live sensibly. It's a word we've seen many times throughout chapter two, to live grace-empowered, spirit-filled, self-control. That that speaks of an inward grace, self-control, sensibly. Also to live righteously, that's an outward grace um, toward others. And godly, that's an upward grace toward God. You see, this grace is complete. It affects us inwardly and toward others and toward God. In the present age, do you see, you, are, you received a new nature by grace. Now pursue what the new nature should to be like Jesus, and you can do it by the grace of God in which he is saving you. 
brings us to the third room, the waiting room in verses 13 and 14. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been justified, we are being sanctified. And thank God we will be glorified. When? When Jesus returns. And it is for his return then that the Christian longs. I've asked you this question before, but when is the last time you looked up and longed for the return of Jesus? When is the last time you gazed at the sky and said, Jesus, please come back? We sang the words. We, we, we fix our eyes on the heavens. We set my mind on things above. Do you? Do we? This morning I was... This morning... I was here at the office and someone sent me this picture. It's only because he brags because this is what he looks like. This is what it, the view looks like off his back deck. You say, he's probably not bragging. He's just trying to encourage, you know, what? Well, it's Jimmy Smith. You know he's bragging. <laughs> he sent me that as I'm going over the sermon. That would be a great sky to look at and say, today would be a good day for you to come, Jesus. But as I suggested, most of us like our lives just fine, don't we? So we don't look toward the sky. Our attitude is, I, I want you to come, Jesus, just not yet. I've got too much life ahead of me. I've got I to I graduate. Hey, I mean, I've got to get out of middle school. Please let me do that. Get to high school. I've got to get a job, I gotta get a wife or a husband, I gotta get some children, I get to retire and play. Don't come back just yet. But when we remember what awaits and what we leave, it becomes our longing. Now from the earliest days of church history, verse 13 has been incredibly important for declaring the, the clear deity of Jesus Christ. It's the same phrases in Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, which speaks of the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. These two verses have forever been the linchpin, um, seen as the linchpin, uh, clearly declaring the deity of Christ, looking for the blessed hope and, and, and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. What's his name? Jesus Christ. The construction of the sense is such that God and Savior both refer to one person, Jesus. He is both God and Savior. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. It does right here, clearly, as well as dozens of other verses. Having been saved in the past through justification, having, uh, are being saved in the present through sanctification, we are also looking to be saved in the future through the return of Christ, who is our great God. We look for it. We're supposed to. We long for it. We're supposed to. John said it this way in 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Same truth. We are looking for the return of Christ with our hope fixed on him. We pursue purity, which, which goes back to what I said earlier, we're we, we are to be looking for and preparing for the return of Christ. We want to be found, purified, and prepared and ready. We don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be unkind. But, but would you have wanted him to come at 11 o'clock last night?
reminded of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan pastor who God used in part to bring about the great awakening in the early 18th century. He was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. He was actually a co-founder of Princeton University, which was founded to train young men for the ministry, by the way. Before his 20th birthday, so he was still like 19, before his 20th birthday, he wrote 70 resolutions by which he would govern his life, 70. And he he would read them every day. Here are just a few of them. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I wish I had done when I come to die. It's a good one. Number 19, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Wow. In other words, everything I do, I'm going to keep the second coming of Christ right in front of my face. I'm going to live with that hope. Number 50, resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. You see the future look. I want to live now, preparing for the future world. And then number 52, amazing. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Right? On their deathbed. (laughs) Resolve that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to an old age. In other words, I don't want to be one of those guys who gets to the end of his life and say, if I had it to do all over again, I would do a lot of things different. I'd change a lot of things. Instead, I'm going to live that way now. Before his 20th birthday, I'm going to live that way now. I'm going to live in such a way that when I come to the end of my life, I'm going to look back and say, that's what I wanted to do. By the grace of God. Sold my wild oats. Nope. Christ could come back. Having mentioned our great gun savior, Paul reminds us of the gospel, verse 14, very quickly. Who gave himself for us. Read through the New Testament. Dozens of times it talks about Jesus giving himself for us. Do you know how much you are loved? To redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus gave himself his life, a ransom for sinners. He did so to redeem us. The word speaks of paying a ransom. Jesus paid the ransom with his own blood. For what? Purify for himself a people for his own possession. First Peter 2, but you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming as excellencies are the good works that we are zealous to do. Everything that we do, everything that we do and everything that we say, prepared in advance to do, to proclaim Jesus to others as our great God and Savior, bringing us to life, purifying us. You too can become part of a people, a people for God's own possession by grace through faith. Last week, Ephesians chapter 1, Michael pointed out the stunning, stunning truth that we are God's own possession. This week we see 
that as such we are a purified people for God's own possession. You belong to God. You're his inheritance. He wants it pure and undefiled. Let me close with this. The text surrounds us with the first and second coming of Christ. In the first coming, he brought salvation to us by grace. His second coming, in his second coming to which we long, when he comes in full glory for all to see, he will vindicate our faith. What do I mean? It's another reason to look forward to his return, to silence the mockers and punish the persecutors. We, we need not look forward to his return with dread, but with glorious expectant hope when all will be made right and Jesus will receive, he will receive the reward of his work on the cross, a people for his own possession to bring him glory for his unspeakable, unspeakable grace. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, we are about this text. We are compassed about behind and before with the appearings of our Lord. Behind us is our trust. Before us is our hope. Behind us is the Son of God in humiliation. Before us is the great God and Savior in His glory. Do you know Him? And do you want Him to come back?